morning. This morning's passage comes from Psalm 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. O Lord my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces, with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due, his, due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is God's true word. We're meditating on the Psalms for the summer. Nobody really knows who Cush the Benjamite, Benjaminite was. He's mentioned in the superscript to this Psalm of David. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But it seems, since he's a Benjaminite, that he was probably one of Saul's disgruntled relatives. Uh, so whether, whether Cush the Benjaminite uh, said nasty things about David back when David was running for his life, hiding in caves from King Saul, or whether it was many years later when, as, when David was a king and Absalom, his son, had led a revolt against him, and uh, Saul's relatives and ancestors uh, reared their heads again uh, to complain about David. Uh, we're not really sure. Uh, but apparently, uh, somebody from the tribe of Benjamin uh, was pretty upset with David. Whatever he accused David of, David believes in Psalm 7 as he sings his song. David believes that he's a victim of injustice. I know why I'm attracted to Mel Gibson movies of the 90s. Uh, maybe this is why you're attracted. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, not like Lethal Weapon. That was all the 80s. The Mel Gibson of the 90s was all about, let's see, uh, Braveheart, The Patriot. And uh, there's a third one I'm thinking of, the movie called Ransom. Okay? And I think why people are drawn to, to those Mel Gibson movies is, is because we can sympathize with, with an injustice done to the hero. Uh, you watch the movie and you're outraged because uh, some innocent family member of the hero is kidnapped or, or uh, unjustly murdered or killed. And so you watch this movie because you're rightly outraged. 
over an injustice. And you want to see that, that you want to see that injustice answered. You know, um, many, many, many thousands of years ago, Plato, and this is a very unfair generalization, but Plato basically said that an injustice is when somebody benefits at the expense of somebody else. Or when a group of people benefit at the expense of another group of people. How do you respond to injustice that comes against you? How do you respond to injustices committed against people who are very close to you and you love? How do you respond to injustice committed against maybe a group of people with whom you sympathize? A group of people, maybe an ethnicity or a race or a class of people with whom you care about very much. Maybe for some reason you have great compassion for them in particular. How do you respond to injustice committed against them? You know, Mel Gibson's heroes in his movies, they respond to injustice by becoming self-appointed vigilantes and satisfying justice that way, in the Hollywood way. And it's exciting to watch. David's response to injustice committed against him, David's response in Psalm 7 is a bit different. And his response, as we read it, gives us insight into the Christian response to injustice. And let's, I'm going to put it this way. Christians can pursue justice in this world, remembering that there's only one judge. Pursue justice, never forget that there's only one judge. And today I want to talk to you about the justice that we want, the justice that we need. But I also want to talk about the justice that we pursue in real time here. Okay, so the justice that we want the justice that we pursue, and the justice that we actually need. Now, wanting justice is, wanting justice to take place in a particular situation is mostly a good desire. That's usually a very good thing when you see an injustice and you want something to be done about it. It's discouraging to watch unjust endeavors succeed, isn't it? You see somebody getting away with something that you know is wrong, you, and you see the system hurting somebody, and it's unfair, and it's unjust. And you see, you see the wicked or, or those who are profiting off of uh, the disadvantages of others. When you see them succeeding and winning and making more money or making more allies and more friends or accumulating more power, you say it's unjust. And that's a good thing to notice that, especially when it impacts you personally, right? right? Maybe, maybe you're upset over an unfair decision. That hurt you. Or maybe somebody's slanderous rumor about you. Maybe a prejudiced comment that somebody makes. Maybe it's a nasty verbal attack against you. Maybe you, uh, maybe you remember abuse. And that's what you can't forget. David in this psalm laments uh, because... While he is the victim of an injustice, and for David, if he's a king now, it's a big deal. Okay? Slanderous accusations made against a king, that affects an entire nation. David believes he hasn't done anything wrong. He's convinced that in this situation, he's, he's an innocent victim. If you read beginning in verse 3, he says, O oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, 
Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. He's being dramatic because he's convinced he's in the right. He hasn't done anything wrong. Now, but here's how he responds. He entrusts his reputation to God. He entrusts his safety also to God. Because he believes that God is a righteous judge. He says, beginning in verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that's in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. I want to just mention three things about what David's saying right here. The first is really an aside. David says that he's righteous. Have you noticed that? Did you wonder what in the world he's talking about there? He says, God, judge me according to my righteous, according to the integrity that is in me. Is David saying something about himself that you and I know is not true? The Bible says in many other places, David said himself earlier in Psalms that there's no one. There's no one righteous. What's he talking about? What he's saying is not that he's absolutely righteous or that he's perfect. That's what you're thinking. Is he saying he's perfect? No. He's saying that in this situation, he's in the right. He's saying that in this situation, he's done nothing wrong and he's a victim of slander. He's a victim of injustice. David knows he's not righteous like God is righteous. That's why he appeals to God as a righteous judge. He goes on to say, and this is his hope, that the wicked may escape justice in this life, but they're not going to escape final judgment in the end. He knows this. He's aware that that although wicked people are prospering against him and against society right now, they're not going to get away with it in the end. At some point, God's going to bring a stop to it, even if it's not in this life, even if David doesn't see it now. David has a very good reason for trusting in, in God's justice. And it's found when he says, you who test the minds and the hearts. You see, when you and I have to act justly, when you and I have to, as human beings, make judgment calls, or when we entrust ourselves to um, a judge appointed by the state over our particular case, human judges, we have to rely on facts, on evidence, on statements, on witnesses and testimonies. For us to make even the best judgments we're capable of making, we need to act upon what we see and hear and how we bring it all together and understand it. But David says, God is a judge that transcends our best abilities to judge, transcends us infinitely as a judge because it says God tests the minds and the hearts. He's the perfect judge because he can look beyond appearances and see the heart. And so he's a perfect judge, and David trusts him fully in this situation. God can judge the soul, okay? Now, in the secular world, if you're a secular person, meaning you, you don't really live um, under God's, uh, in your mind, you don't live under the authority of a God, maybe you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, um, you just kind of think, well, God may be there, I don't know. Um, you just got to make it in your world. You know, make it in your own way in the world. Um, the secular mindset, especially in America, because we're very individualistic 
in America. So secular individualism can only trust in two things for justice. You've either got to trust in yourself for justice when you've been wronged. Or you've got to trust in society. You've got to trust in the state. There's only two things you can do. Trust in civil authority to get it right now in this life. Or trust in yourself to make things right. To accomplish justice. That's it. That's your only choice for a secular mindset and for a secular life. You don't have what David has. Which is to say there is a righteous judge who is eternal. Who sees over everything. And he can judge what's in the heart. What's in the mind. He knows perfectly. And in the end he will judge perfectly. So the Bible tells us to patiently trust God. To respond to the injustice that you see. And to respond to the injustice that you feel. Trust God with the injustice that you feel. Trust God to work. In response to the injustice that you see. We want justice and that's a good thing. But we can't always get justice now. Or even in this lifetime. And we certainly can't always get justice the way we want. The way we plan for justice to take place. So in Psalm 7 you have an illustration of what it looks like to remain a faithful servant. Rather than become a vengeful tyrant. See David was in a position of such authority and power that he could have responded to a justice against himself by becoming a vengeful king. But he doesn't do that. And you and I don't have to do that either. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, if God is a righteous, perfect judge who's going to make all things right in the end, in the great day of wrath when the Lord Jesus returns and renews the earth and renews humanity, if God's going to make all things right, then I guess we can neglect and overlook injustice now. If God's going to make everything okay in the end, then I guess we don't really have to worry about it now. I want to speak against that idea because the answer is obviously no. God makes all things right in the end, but that doesn't mean we fall asleep now when we see injustice, when we feel the consequences of injustice. The justice that we pursue now is actually, it offers the world a taste of God's coming justice. He's a God of justice. And if you belong to him, then you have the opportunity by how you live right now to offer the world a taste of God's coming justice. And I mean that in a good sense. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, something called Reflections on Psalms. Not a theologian, a brilliant man, a writer, a professor. And and, and he said, look, from my perspective, not as a theologian, not as a Bible scholar, I'm just going to tell you what I see in the Psalms. It's a good read. And, and there's a whole chapter in his reflections on Psalms that he calls judgment. Because you see the theme of judgment all over the Psalms. And C.S. Lewis said, he, he said there's a distinction between two kinds of justice that you see in the Psalms. You see a heavenly justice and an earthly justice. They're both important. He says the Christian worldview that you find in the New Testament, it, it emphasizes heavenly justice. See, God will have ultimate victory over the wicked on the last day. The Bible calls it that day, the last day. God will have victory on the last day over evil and wickedness while at the same time saving the righteous. He'll judge the wicked 
He'll right all wrongs and he will vindicate and save the righteous. All right. Now, who is the righteous? Well, in the New Testament, the Christian sees herself as the righteous who will be saved. See, in the New Testament, the Christian sees herself as an accused defendant. C.S. Lewis says the Christian sees herself, sees himself as an accused defendant sitting in the dock in a courtroom in a criminal case. And the defendant knows he's guilty. But the judge, the righteous judge, pardons the defendant, not because of his own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the judge's son, Jesus Christ. So the Christian knows I'm guilty, but I have just received an innocent sentence because Jesus Christ received God's wrath for me. And now I am righteous because I'm found, the New Testament says, in Christ, those two very important words. And that's the, that's the Christian worldview, and it emphasizes God's final justice, his heavenly justice. Okay? And uh, honestly, I, I can't think of a, maybe a better passage in the New Testament that hi, then highlights this concept of God's final justice and vindication of, of, of those that he loves. Paul in, Paul in 1 Thessalonians says this to his friends. He's talking about their persecutions and their afflictions. And he says, your persecutions and your afflictions, it's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with all his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That is the heavenly justice that David foreshadows in his psalm. But there's another justice, there's another type of justice that C.S. Lewis says is present all over the psalms. And, and it's really the Jew, it, it's a Jewish worldview. So you see this Christian worldview of heavenly justice in the New Testament hinted at in the psalms. But the Psalms really show you the Jewish worldview with, which emphasized an earthly justice. God, we know you're going to vindicate the oppressed eventually, but we really need help right now. The Psalms say again and again, how long, O Lord? How long? When will you visit us? When will you make things right? See, David, and, and David is, is illustrating perfectly. He's kind of speaking uh, for the Jews when they were harassed. And they saw themselves as innocent, not perfect. Uh, innocent as they were in the right. They were being unjustly oppressed. Right? And what they would do is they would appeal to a just judge to vindicate them by enforcing justice on their oppressors. Think of Fiddler on the Roof. I'm going to bring that up again. Did I bring it up like two weeks ago? Fiddler on the Roof, the whole time, Tevye is crying out to God, why am I so poor? He says, I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. 
And, and he says, he says uh, at one point uh, to God, he cries out to God, he goes, send us the cure. We've got the sickness already. And, and the idea, and you can see it in the Psalms, is the Jews were saying, yes, God, we know that in the end you will right all wrongs, but we're suffering now. Until then, help us out right now. So the New Testament says, look, if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer now. But God will vindicate you in the end. In the Old Testament, and especially in the, in the Psalms, you can say by faith, God, I know you're going to make all things right one day, but help me out right now. Visit me right now and give me a break because I need it. And James Boyce, the, the preacher, uh, this, uh, James Boyce said when he preached on Psalm 7 that we need both of these perspectives. Just one is only half of the picture for the Christian. We need to understand that God will judge all wickedness in the end and vindicate everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. But we also as Christians can pray against injustice now. As Christians, we can speak openly against injustice now in our community and in our world. And as Christians, we can actually act against injustice right now. And James Boyce said that there are three important needs for Christians and for the church to consider today. The first is that we need to be champions for the poor or for the disadvantaged. Okay? Helping those who cannot help themselves. Who else will if it's not us? We often think that if we vote a certain way politically, uh, we'll be able to shrink our government. Well, you know something? If Christians and churches actually worked for justice by understanding the heart of God, government would shrink naturally because the church would take care of and defend those who cannot speak for themselves and those can, who cannot act for themselves. There, there is an even more powerful way of responding to the injustice you see than simply going the political route, which is totally fine. You can do that. You can do that. But God says, remember the poor because you used to be poor. That's what he said to the Israelites. You know, uh, in a sense, justice is treating everybody according to the character of God. How does God want people who are oppressed or who are wicked or, or, or who, who are in the right in a particular situation? How does he want them to be treated according to his nature, according to his character? Well, in that spirit, act accordingly to them. In the situation that you're in. So be champions for the poor and the disadvantaged, Boyce says. The second thing Boyce said was live with upright conduct. If you're going to speak and act justly as a Christian, you can't live as a hypocrite. You have to be just yourself. You have to treat your employees justly. You have to treat your friends justly. You have to treat the people in your home, if you're the head of your home, justly. And finally, the third thing Boyce said was Christians and churches need to vindicate the righteous. And not in the way God does. What he says is we have to speak plainly about what is evil and what is wicked in the world. And we have to speak plainly about what is good and what is righteous and what glorifies God in the world. In a helpful way, in a constructive way. But we need to be able to openly declare what is good from what is evil according to God's standards. 
So champions of the poor and disadvantaged, living by upright conduct ourselves, and in our actions, and in our prayers, and in our speech, vindicating what is righteous and what is wicked. And the earthly justice that we pursue in that way will offer our world and our neighbors a taste of God's heavenly justice that will be coming. But as we do this, we always have to remember that as we pursue justice, we're not the judge. As we pursue justice and pray for justice and talk about justice, there's only one judge. There's only one righteous judge. You know, it's critical that we not pursue justice in our own way. With the Burger King slogan, have it your way, bad idea when, you, when you're working for justice. Bad idea to have justice your way. We cannot pursue justice our own way. I think another reason why we're attracted to Mel Gibson movies from the 90s is not simply because we appreciate justice. It's because we want vengeance. In some of, the, some of the most successful Hollywood movies, a hero is unjustly wronged, and then you watch the hero through the entire movie vindicate himself in his own power, in his own strength, by his own wits. And you love that. We love seeing people act vengeance against those who have hurt them. That's why we... Uh, my son and I watched Gladiator just several days ago. It's the best parts of that movie is, is um, Commodus gets it in the end. He gets what he deserves by the hand of Maximus. And in our hearts, we want to be that person. We want to be the person who can say, you did this to me, but I'm going to do something about it. And that, that is living by your own sense of justice. That's living by vengeance, friend. And Tim Keller likes to say, when we do that, we're playing God. We're sitting in God's justice seat. We're acting like the righteous judge. And God says, hey, get out of my seat. You're sitting in my seat. You know, being indignant about, about injustice or oppression or, or crime, that's a good thing. It says, David says, God is indignant every day about people destroying his good earth and hurting people that he's created in his image. He's indignant about it all day. You want a God who's indignant about wickedness and oppression and deception and, and crime and war and murder. You want a God who's indignant about those things. You do not want a God who doesn't care and doesn't give a flip about people hurting one another. Okay? It's a good thing to be like God and have indignation over the hurt that you see taking place in the world and even against yourself. But when your heart pursues vengeance, friends, you go too far. That's when we go too far, when we want to be vengeful. And now we're just as sinful as those who commit the offense for which we're indignant. And David says in, in verses 15 and 16, when he talks about the wicked person, he says, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. You, I like to say that. Well, that's not me. I, I'm not that person who digs a pit and then sits in it. Okay? But the Bible tells us that is what we become if we live for vengeance. 
if we live to repay people for what they've done to us or what they've done to the people that we love and identify most with. And you know why this is so tragic and so dangerous and why it's such a great offense to our creator? Because, you're, because you and I are not righteous judges. It's as simple as that. When we live for vengeance, we, we try and act like God. And so a condemning heart, a judgmental heart, my friends, will destroy us. If not now, then in the end, on the last day. What we need is not our own justice. We need God's justice. David didn't sit in judgment over his enemies. David was far from a perfect man. He screwed up in royal ways. But you see here in Psalm 7, a man who is not sitting in judgment over his enemies because he trusted in God's judgment. You, you cannot pursue justice while harboring vengeance in your heart. It's completely inconsistent and, and hypocritical. You can't pursue, pursue justice while at the same time pursuing veg, vengeance or having a condemning or judgmental spirit. You're working against yourself, friend. But see, Jesus pursued justice by laying aside vengeance. Jesus was the only person who ever lived who had the right to inflict vengeance on those who persecuted him unjustly. Because he never sinned. Because he was God. He is, Jesus is the righteous judge that, God's, that David's talking about. But Jesus laid aside his right to vengeance in order to pursue justice. Now, how did he do that? He asked God. To pour out all of God's perfect justice on him. That's how Jesus laid aside his right for vengeance. He said to the father in heaven. You pour your vengeance out on me. And when he was nailed to a cross 2000 years ago. The vengeance that I deserve and that you deserve. Was all poured out on Jesus Christ. Who had a right to exercise vengeance. But didn't. Instead he said father forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. And Peter, the apostle Peter summed this up in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about Jesus. He said, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Surely if the son of God could trust his heavenly father to execute perfect justice, surely you and I can if we follow him in faith. The injustice that has been committed against you, friend, was either judged on the cross when Jesus hung there, or it will be judged when Jesus returns. That's it. Those are, those are the two options for any injustice committed against you. It was either committed against you by a Christian, and that person's injustice was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ, or... The justice is coming. If that person remains unforgiven, Jesus will rectify that injustice when he returns. So that frees you from acting like a judge. You don't need to because of the cross and because of God's heavenly justice. See, Jesus said no to vengeance so that God's justice would prevail for your benefit. So now it's your privilege by trusting Christ, it's your privilege to give up vengeance, to throw it away, to say, God, I don't want to live with a judgmental heart. I don't want to live with a condemning heart. I want to 
free conscience as I pursue justice in my family, where I work, in my community, and in this world, and how I vote. In, in, in the charities and the ministries and, and, and the politicians that I support, I want to pursue justice with a conscience liberated from vengeance. And only the gospel can do that. And the gospel says the righteous judge hung on a cross so that he could give you the verdict of innocent. So pursue justice, please, and let's pursue justice. But let's always remember there's only one judge. And it's not you. It's not me. So let's give up our judgmental hearts. Let's, let's let God judge. Okay. Let the blood of Christ cover the sins committed against you. Or let the wrath of Christ returning deal with the sins committed against you. Meanwhile, until he returns, patiently trust that God is going to rightly and perfectly respond to the hurt you feel and to the hurt you see. And then we'll be ready as individuals and as a church. We'll be ready to pursue justice with clear, unbiased, liberated consciences. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we worship a risen Lord who chose to not inflict perfect vengeance on us for putting him on a cross. Thank you that Jesus was slow to anger. Thank you that Jesus was merciful and compassionate. And in his name, help us to do likewise. Amen.